We thank you for the many ways that you have worked in us and through us. We thank you in particular for the gift of your word. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, as we open the Bible this morning, my prayer is, I hope our prayer is, that you would find us to be teachable, that you would find us to be amenable to your leadership, and that at the end of our time together in the word, we would be more accurate reflections of the person of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I have been uh, fascinated by elephants for a long time. They are huge, monstrous creatures. And uh, when I was in Africa a couple times in Zambia, I got a chance to see some up close. In fact, one time on my second trip there, we were coming back from a little village where we had been teaching for a little while, and we stopped off at this uh, tea house, this British kind of tea house out in the middle of nowhere. We stopped there to have tea. And while we were sitting out on the on the back a patio, uh, an elephant who was not a big, big elephant and not a small, small elephant, kind of a medium-sized elephant, just kind of wandered up, said hello to all the people that were having their tea and kind of moseyed on. And I'm taken aback by this a little bit, but my friend uh, that I was with there, his name was James, he said, no, we've been here before. That's apparently the house elephant. And uh, he just comes by and says hi. trying to think of the kind of house you have to have to have a house elephant, right? And uh, then one time, uh, Pastor Laura and I were at a, a fair called the Eastern States Exposition in the western part of Massachusetts one summer. Actually, it was in September. And uh, as part of this big E, they called it, the Eastern States Exposition, they do all kinds of things. They have a huge fair, a huge carnival, all those things that you would normally expect. And they have these exhibition houses where all the states in New England set up what's famous about them and sell you their goods that are famous there. And one of the things they had there that uh, we had not encountered before was an elephant ride. And so I'm thinking, wow, this will be fantastic. We're going to ride an elephant. And so we waited in line to get up on the elephant. We had to climb up the little thing get up to the elephant and climb up the little thing to get on the elephant. And we're trying, when you're trying to straddle an elephant, it can be a little problematic. If the elephant is wider than your normal straddle, if you know what I mean. And so we did this uh, wild elephant ride, which was really two laps around a 20-yard circle. At about that speed. (laughs) And we got done, and we got off, and and, uh, Pastor Laura, I think, asked the attendant of the ride, what was the elephant's name? The elephant's name was Beulah. Beulah the elephant. Now, if you were going to describe an elephant this morning, you'd all take a pretty good stab at it, right? You'd say they were big and they have this kind of grayish color and they have the the trunk and the massive legs and their tails which swish around and and, uh, some have those tusks, those ivory tusks. And so there's these big, fascinating kind of creatures, at least as far as I'm concerned. But there's one other thing that is said to be true about elephants. Do you know what that is? They never forget, right? Well, here, folks, is a profound theological and biblical truth. Ready? God is not an elephant. God is not Beulah. Why? Because he can and he does choose to forget our sin. One of the places in Scripture, it says, as far as the east is from the west. Do I have my directions right here? 
Yes, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God puts away our sin once we've given it over to him. I think that's encouraging. This is encouraging to me. And sometimes as I've lived this life, I've realized that many times the wounds uh, that I experience are self-inflicted by my sin. A guy named R.C., I won't share his last name with you, who was 21, he walked up to, two, uh, to a patrol car where a couple of Detroit police officers were showing some kids in a neighborhood how their computer equipment in the car worked. And so R.C. gets curious. He says, can you show me how that thing really, really works? And they, and they said, sure, just give us your driver's license. And so he handed over his driver's license to the officers, and two minutes later, he had handcuffs on. Because it turned out he had been wanted for a two-year-old armed robbery in St. Louis, Missouri. Another guy walks into a little corner store with a shotgun and demands all the cash from the cash drawer. After the cashier puts the cash in a bag, the, the robber, he looks on the shelf behind the cashier and there's a bottle of scotch there. He says, put the scotch in the bag too. The cashier says, I can't do that. I don't know if you're 21 or not. Put the scotch in the bag. I'm sorry, sir. I can't do that. I, I got to be sure that you're over 21. So at this point, the robber, bearing the shotgun, pulls out his wallet, takes out his driver's license, hands it to the clerk, who looks it over, hands it back to him and says, okay, here's the scotch. You can take it. And the robber leaves the store. An hour later, he was arrested at his home because the cashier had read his address off of his driver's license. Sometimes our wounds are self-inflicted. And these are, you know, kind of cute and kind of humorous, but the wounds that we experience often because of our sin are not funny at all. They leave scar tissue on us and on other people. The wounds of sin, they're really not all that funny. When I was stationed in Wyoming at Francis E. Warren Air Force Base, I was brand new in the Air Force, and we had a neighbor who lived near us, and about six months or so into our relationship with him, um, his, uh, his uh, wife and his family got in the car one day, and they just left. I said, Lou, what, what's going on? He said, well, my drinking finally drove them away. He lost his family. Or there was a pastor in Colorado Springs, uh, and this story is sad in the ways it's been repeated over and over and over again, or replicated over and over again. It was a pastor of a growing church until his church found out that he had lied about his education. You all probably know a story or two. And these kind of stories, these are kinds of the stories that make the headlines. And it's easy to see how these big sins can ruin somebody's life. But even if those sins that we commit aren't worthy of headlines, they all have the power to ruin our lives. Ruin the lives of people around us. And along the way, I know I've discovered that, and I suspect I'm not alone in this room, discovering a splash and ripple effect of the sins that I've committed. They don't make the headlines, but they're every bit as crippling. And it's possible today that as we're here in this room and folks out there watching on their computers or their screens, it's possible that right now 
the legacy of sin is impacting somebody's life in a debilitating way. And so that's why we're going to turn to the Bible this morning. Because God's Word tells us that what we have ruined, God can restore. There is, there is hope for those whose lives have been ruined by sin. So I'm going to read for you a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. I think the words will be up on the screen. If you're watching on the website at home, there's a Bible option next to the picture. You can click on there, choose your poison in terms of the Bible, and read along. Here it is, Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 18. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. The people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any, bought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. I... Even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. There's like three or four things we need to take away from this passage in what I call this process of restoration. And the first one is this. We have to, folks, we have to, folks, we have to face up to the reality of our sin. And God makes that clear through the prophet Isaiah in verses 21 through 24. Now listen, nobody likes talking about sin. Nobody likes hearing other people talk about sin. And I completely, completely, completely get that. There's a lot of four-letter words that are bandied about in our culture these days. You may have used some of them this week. Shh, we won't tell anybody. But even more powerful than some of those four-letter words, as egregious as they can be, is this three-letter word, sin. We don't like talking about it. We don't like hearing other people talk about it. Well, let me take that back. We often like talking about other people's sins. That can be fun. But when it's pointed at us, we don't like that very much. But we can't gloss over it. We can't whitewash it. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't destroy. Because, listen, we are all afflicted with this thing. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin breaks the heart of God. But listen, he doesn't just turn his back and ignore it. He encourages us to deal with it. It's an issue we all have to deal with. And in this passage, God is very specific about how his people have sinned against him. To paraphrase a little bit, he says, you haven't called on me. You haven't worshipped me. You haven't checked in. You haven't engaged on my behalf. To quote more directly in verse 24, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. This tells that sin not only hurts us, it wounds God. When we sin, we do more than just bend the rules or break the law. We are offending God. Sin, first and foremost, is an act of rebellion against God. 
There was a king of Israel named David. He had the hots for a girl named Bathsheba. Saw her bathing on a roof one night and said, I want some of that. Unfortunately, Bathsheba was married to somebody else. David didn't care. He sent a little messenger over to Bathsheba. He said, come on, girl, come on over. And she did. Hung out with David. Spent the night, he says euphemistically. Well, Bathsheba was married to a husband, a prominent soldier in David's army, whom David, get this, David arranged for Bathsheba's husband to be right up front in the middle of the action and get killed in battle. So he could have Bathsheba for his wife. Oh, it's all good now. It's all legal now. Her husband's dead. I'll just marry Bathsheba. Bring her on home for good. And he did. But one day, one of those annoying people shows up. One of the prophets shows up and David, he's the king, he's the religious guy, he's the author of many psalms. He says, hey, good to see you, prophet buddy, what's going on? And, and Nathan, the prophet, tells David this story about this guy who had taken somebody's one and only prized sheep. Even though he had a bunch of sheep of his own, he took this guy's one and only prized sheep. And he killed it. And David said, tell me who that is. When I find out who that is, they're going to have to deal with me. The prophet looks David in the eye and says, buddy, it's you. It's you. And so David does powerfully what you and I often don't do, at least I don't often do when confronted with the reality of my sin. I tend to go, hmm, okay, sh- hope nobody saw that. <laughs> Not David. His heart was broken. His heart was broken because he knew what Isaiah had said in this passage to us, which was that the sin breaks the heart of God. And so we hear David's response to the prophet in Psalm 51, where he says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Sin can destroy lots of relationships, lots of human enterprises, but the most profound damage caused by sin is that it creates a separation between you and and I and God. And so we have to face it. First John chapter 1, verse 9, that Pastor Laura said to us, says, if we confess our sins. So I'd like all of you to raise your hands right now and one at a time, we're going to have you confess your sins. Is that okay? Hmm, I guess not. Maybe you've heard of the seven deadly sins. Have you heard of this list before? Uh, This classification seems to have come uh, from a group of folks called the Desert Fathers. They were early Christian hermits and ascetics who lived in the deserts of Egypt beginning around the 3rd century A.D. They identified these seven evil thoughts or so that everyone needed to overcome. So here's the list. You ready? Seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Ringing any bells? 
And the weird thing about this, and C.S. Lewis writes about this really, really, really well. He, the, the sins aren't things in and of themselves. What the sins are is a good thing gone wrong. See, God creates the good things, and you and I, we take them and we twist them and make them wrong. Something good gone wrong. Look, I'll be transparent with you this morning. I uh, have an issue with uh, selfishness. It, the major category is pride. See, I really believe in this, my soul of my soul and the mind of my mind that really everything should be about me and my preferences. How do I know this is my problem? Because it really ticks me off when I see it in somebody else. I can be selfish, especially when squeezed by circumstances. And when I do that, I can respond in not-so-pleasant ways. Now you're saying to yourself, Pastor Howard, how can a guy like you that wears those spiffy shirts really be selfish? Trust me, I am. Let me tell you how this can manifest itself in really small things. So Pastor and Laura and I are trying to walk every day, We're walking four or five, six miles a day, just to however the day rolls out. That's what we do. And so I'll be walking this path that I've scoped out that I walk, and it's about four miles, and so I'll add to it or, or whatever if I want to do a little more on a given day. So I know where this path is, and I just kind of put my uh, earplugs in, and I, I hit the, turn the music on 99, and I hit the road, and I'm walking down the sidewalk on my path. And then I'll come up behind somebody who is walking more slowly than I am. And in my head, I'm thinking, will you just get out of my way. You're blocking traffic here. If you're going to be slow, go to where the slow people walk. Now, this is all going on in my head. As far as anybody can tell, looking at me, I'm just walking down the sidewalk, bebopping along to my music, but in my head, I'm saying, get out of my way. Get out of my way. Or, They'll be coming at me in the opposite direction. On a sidewalk that's about, you know, three feet wide. And this is the COVID pandemic era. So as we approach each other, one of us has to move to create six feet of social distancing. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm moving at a pretty good clip here. That person should move to create the six foot social distancing. It shouldn't be up to me. Because this is my world, this is my sidewalk, this is my walk, this is my path, this is mine. Move! But they don't. So I have to. And I wave and I smile. As much of a smile as I usually do. But it's there, it's cooking all the time. And I'm not going to make you confess your sins today, even though it would be kind of fun. But let's not kid each other, shall we? We're all carrying something around in our heads. Something that we think about or we act on. And you and I, we both know, doesn't please God. So... Given the potent reality of sin, the power that sin has to separate us from God, we really, 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 really need to trust God to forgive our sins. 
Because you and I, we are absolutely, totally, completely unable to pay the price for our own sin. In society, we have an idea of justice that works, and we're crystal clear when it doesn't. Like a few years ago when a 16-year-old kid in Texas who was convicted of drunk driving and vehicular homicide, he killed four people. He got probation and therapy. In our gut, we just know that's not right. When we sin, when we sin in our gut, we just know it's not right. And we also know, we also know there's really nothing we can do to undo it. Oh, sure, sometimes we can make restitution. Sometimes we can give back what we've taken. Sometimes we can try and make amends for those things that we've done. And all those efforts are worthwhile. But you know what? You know what? We cannot undo the thing that we have done. However, however, God has a plan. He doesn't ignore it. He forgives it. He blots it out, he says in the book of Isaiah. He remembers it no more. And remember from the passage, he said, I forgive you for my own sake. He forgives us because of who he is. At the beginning of that first John letter, the pastor Laura read to us, it says, God is love. And he doesn't forgive from a human standpoint. And his forgiveness isn't based on how much we've made restitution. His forgiveness is based on his own character, not our character. When we sin and we confess, he forgives, full stop, period. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so, you and I, this is good news. Empowered by God's forgiveness, we can then let go of the past. Pastor Laura was the... Uh, children and students pastor at a church in Newton, Massachusetts, and every year at Easter time, they would uh, have uh, helium-filled balloons taped to all the pews to decorate the place. They were purple and yellow or something, purple and white. And, uh, and so every year they would do this. And then the second year she was there, somebody in the congregation uh, said that they had a latex allergy. So she'd really appreciate it if they didn't use those uh, latex balloons anymore. So, Pastor Laura, good soldier, she went out and found those, you know, those mylar balloons they sell? They'll inflate with helium and, and put on the ends of the pews. And so they did that. It looked really, really, really nice until a couple, three of them got away. The problem with those mylar balloons, they don't ever deflate like the like the latex balloons do. And so, to this day, if you go to the Second Church of Newton, Massachusetts, and you look up, there's some helium-filled balloons up there. And we look up and we know, every time we walk in afterwards, we look up and we know, oh yeah, man, I blew that, didn't I? And that's what we do with our sin. See, God's forgotten it. He's put it away as far as the east is from the west. But you and I, we keep looking at it. Or sometimes, our helium balloons, they have very, very long strings attached to them. And every now and then what we do is we pull that thing back down. So we can get a closer look at it again. So it can mar our lives again. So we can be reminded of our woundedness again. 
God has let the thing go. And so in verse 18 of this passage in Isaiah, he says, forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. I was doing my first master's thesis and I had it all on a computer floppy disk. Do you remember the five and a quarter inch floppy disks way back in, in, uh, in Steve Hoth's childhood? Um, I'm picking on him because he's not here today. Um, anyway, so I had it on a, on a sloppy disk. My, it was like 100 pages plus attachments and appendices and stuff. It was, it'd been a lot of work. And I had it on this five and a quarter inch floppy disk and I'd laid it on my desk. And then one of the guys who I worked with uh, came up and the, the safe that we were using was right below I, where I, my workstation was. And we had this little magnetic strip that we put on the safe and said either open or close, depending on if the, the safe was open or closed. So you knew if you left the room and you were the only one there, you had to lock the safe up. He took the magnetic strip and he laid it next to my five and a quarter inch floppy disk and he wiped out my thesis. It went away. We're talking gone. I put the disk back in the computer thinking, oh, maybe there's something still left in there. No, zero kilobytes is what the disk said when I went to look at it. That's what God does with our sin. He erases it. And so when he does that, when we get that in our heads, we can then turn to concentrate on what God is going to do in our lives today and tomorrow, if he gives us some tomorrows. When we look at the life of Jesus and see how he related to people, something quickly becomes obvious. Jesus cares more about our future than he does about our past. This morning on the first kids video, Pastor Laura read the story of the guy, the little guy, the short, wee little man named Zacchaeus in the New Testament. You know that story, right? The guy who was so short he couldn't see over the crowd to see Jesus. So he climbs up a tree so he can look down from the tree and he can see Jesus. And Jesus looks up and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, buddy, come on down. I'm going to your place for dinner tonight. Because Zacchaeus had been a bad guy. He had ripped people off. He was a tax collector. And no matter what idea you have in your brain about the Internal Revenue Service, trust me, they were nothing like these tax collectors in the day and time of Jesus. They had a certain amount of money they had to collect from a certain area, and they were free to collect whatever they could over that amount of money. Ruthless. Ruthless. But Jesus knows. He knew that Zacchaeus could become an honest tax collector, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron in that day and time, but he knew Zacchaeus could become an honest businessman. He knew that Zacchaeus could be generous with his money. Jesus did not allow this man's past to be an obstacle to his future. God wants to do a new thing with us, but you and I, we have got to let go of the past. Letting go of the past. You know what that is? It's what the Bible calls repentance. It's saying, I don't want that thing to be part of my life anymore. God, please help me to move forward. And it's concentration on what God is doing in our lives today and tomorrow. Letting go of the past, that's repentance. Focusing on what God wants us to do today and tomorrow, that's obedience. It's saying, Irrespective of what has brought me to this place in my life, I will do today 
that which God is calling me to do. I know it's no fun to talk about sin, but we have to work our way through it to get past it to this reality that God has said to us, listen, I have so loved this world that I gave my only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this truth from Your Word that you have called us to this place that you call forgiveness, Lord. We come to that place today with all of our baggage, all of those things that are bouncing around in our brains, all those things that we thought we got away with. We leave them with you. We embrace your forgiveness. We let go of this past. We look forward to what you have called us to do in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.